Well, thank you for your warm welcome. Uh, it's always a delight to uh, come over and visit you and to worship with you. The subtitle for today is Restoration. It's part of your series on the Young Church in Action. And it's an interesting title, and I'd like to give an alternative title, because if you like a quirky title, the title is What's the What? What's the What? Don't panic too much about it, it may become clear. Interesting that we're talking of restoration of a man who was congenitally disabled. So in fact, he had never known what it was like to walk. And his restoration maybe serves as a picture in broad terms to us of what God gets up to in our lives. That he takes us from what we were back to what we were meant to be. And I'd like to look at four broad themes this morning. First of all, the beggar's need, then the apostle's offer, the gift of restoration to wholeness, uh, and finally, reactions, both the man's reactions and the crowd's. And throughout, I'll be trying to draw some implications and inferences for us. So what do we find in verse 1? That they're going to prayer at the temple courts. It's 3 in the afternoon. We've already read in Acts 2 and verse 46 that they were still keeping up going to the temple to pray regularly. And we're given a very specific place, the gate called Beautiful. Now, for those historians amongst you and those who aren't, the gate called Beautiful was probably the gate called the Nicanor Gate. It was a remarkable thing, 75 feet or so high and covered with uh, bronze that had been brought in from Corinth. It was making a very big, powerful statement that actually the God who uh, was being worshipped was a magnificent God. And so here is where the action takes place. And it's bad enough, I guess, if you're sat on the floor as a disabled person begging in a doorway like that. But imagine one that's kind of ten times as high. You would feel pretty, pretty tiny. Uh, Even me sat down against a gate like that. I would feel pretty, pretty tiny. And... We're told in verse 2 that this guy was put there every day. Again, there's, there's something about passivity. This poor bloke didn't have much of a choice. And as I read this, my heart went out to him. It was almost like his friends just plonked him there every day. He was just shoved there, and that's the way it was. And that was the way he made his living. Verse 3, very interestingly, the man does what he normally does. He survives tough days by begging and by the generosity of those who are coming to the temple. And we're told, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Verse 4 Something for us to learn, I think, as we minister 
healing in the Lord's name, but also when we receive ministry. Peter and John look straight at him. There's an engagement. It's not done in a sort of amorphous, detached way. There's real engagement. And there's a real power, isn't there, when someone's speaking to you, when they bother to look at you in the eye. Uh, We've all received service, good service and poor service in various places. And sometimes when we receive good service, we think part of it is because I was treated like a human being. And in ministry, I think this verse reminds us that it's not a conveyor belt of offering prayer for healing. It's not a conveyor belt. We're actually dealing with individuals created in the image of God who may be broken, but nevertheless in the image of God. So he looks straight at uh, the beggar, as does John. And Peter invites the beggar in response, look at us. He's looking at the beggar, and he's saying to the beggar, look at us. Don't avert your eyes. Again, I think that's quite powerful. This guy on the floor, as with many beggars that we've probably encountered, don't actually look you in the eye. There's just a a sad note which says, you know, family to feed or man and dog to feed. And you sometimes get an acknowledgement but you don't really get any eye contact. And so the apostles are doing something quite unique here. They're lifting the man up. They're treating him probably as Jesus would have treated him and in a way that he wasn't used to being treated, just by the invitation. So instead of a careless toss of a coin, look at us. Relate to us as a fellow human being. You may be broken. You may be disabled, but look at us. Look at us. And the bloke does, gives them his attention, we're told in verse 5, Why? Expecting to get something from them. Well, he certainly gets something from them, but not what he set out to expect. And again, I think that's why this passage speaks to us today, that in our praying, we will sometimes be seeking the Lord about something, about a particular solution to a situation, and we'll be expecting the answer that the Lord gives to be X, as with this man expecting cash, and actually the Lord says, no, 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 no. I've got something far more wonderful than that. I'm going to answer your prayer, but not in the way that you are envisaging it. Because like the beggar, we're seeing it from too low down. We need to see it from this height and not that height. And that's where vision from God comes in. And then Peter says in verse 6, silver and gold I don't have. You can imagine the mega disappointment of the beggar at that point. Ah, for goodness sake. Well, what am I going to get then? I'm after some dosh. I need it to live by. And I'm being disappointed by this bloke who I understand is a follower of the Most High God. What on earth? is going on. Now, Peter says, silver or gold I don't have, but what I have, I give to you. This is where we start to unravel part of the alternative heading for this sermon. 
What is the what that Peter is offering? A little detective work from looking at other writings by Luke, the author of Acts, may help us. In Luke 12 and verse 32, Jesus says this, Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Again, in 1 Corinthians 14, sorry, 1 Corinthians 4 and 20, we're told that that kingdom is not a kingdom of talk, it's not a talking shop, it's a kingdom of power. Now that kingdom is given to nobodies like Peter and John, to you and to me, because God is in the business of restoring that kingdom which was lost. Now the second clue is again in Luke's Gospel, Luke 19, where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he diverts to Jericho and he encounters Zacchaeus, the crooked taxman. And Zacchaeus is uh, amazed by this encounter with Jesus and as a result of that, He is embraced by the love of God and his life is absolutely turned around as he repents. And Jesus says this in Luke 19, The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Not who, what was lost. For the Greek scholars amongst you, the phrase that Jesus uses in Luke 19 is to apololos. It's a neuter noun. It doesn't refer to peoples, it refers to an object. So what's the what? This is where it's worth digging around in God's word. Again, for buffs amongst you, literary buffs, who've read Milton's Paradise Lost and Milton's Paradise Regained, we have a cameo of all that Adam lost when he disregarded the loving commands of God and followed Satan. In Paradise Regained, we find that the kingdom is restored through Jesus, the sinless one, who restores the kingdom. And what Luke is kind of doing here, I think, in Acts chapter 3, is picking up this Adam the loser, Jesus the victor, theme. God had designed Adam to rule, but he blew it when he fell for temptation and when he believed the lies of the devil. Death, sickness, trouble all followed. And we know that sin creates a gap between us and God. We know that today because although our sin has been forgiven if we are a follower of Jesus, we still sin. And we know, we know when we have sinned, we feel out of sorts with the Lord. And we know there's only one thing we can do, and that's to get back and go back to Jesus. And when we're in that situation, as Adam was, our authority that God chooses to place with us is taken from us. But of course on the cross, Christ disarmed the powers and the authorities and he triumphed over them by that cross. So the what I'm suggesting 
is a restoration of the kingdom and a restoration of the authority that the Lord had in mind for Adam when he set him to rule over the earth. So Peter says, what I have, I give you. And of course, what he has is the authority that he has received from the Lord to proclaim the good news of reconciliation with God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that we have remembered as we've broken bread and shared wine this morning. It reminds us that Satan's curse is broken and Peter deals with this man's need by giving him what he has, authority. Because you need authority to come out with something like, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And that's, of course, what he says. You see, the whole gospel isn't just a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of complete restoration and healing. We see that in verse 16 of this chapter. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. The power of Jesus' name is quite remarkable for a believer uh, to use and to wield. Now, in uh, ancient Near Eastern thought, the name actually was very much bound up with the nature of the person. The name was the essence of the person. So Peter gives him what he has, the ability to rule over Satan's sickness through the power of Jesus' name. Now I want to tell you a story from my working days. Um, I I had the joy and the responsibility of uh, leading about 2,000 people. And uh, I had a staff officer. Now, my staff officer was um, uh, an officer of, of, of subordinate rank to me who actually couldn't command divisional commanders but could say to them over the phone, um, Mr. Taylor's asked me to give you a ring and he would like you to do X. Now, Sergeant Peacock, let us say, has no authority over this commander, but she uses the magic phrase, Mr. Taylor. Now, Mr. Taylor is nothing at all. It just happens that Mr. Taylor's got a particular role in the organisation. And as soon as she says that, their ears prick up and they do what Mr. Taylor has asked to happen. Now, by that very, very simple illustration, I'm trying to convey to you in a very, very tiny way what it is when we as believers use the name of Jesus. We are creating a link between heaven and earth. It's not just a phrase. It's not just uh, something that's frothy and powerless. And Peter uses the name of Jesus and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then we get another lesson for ourselves as we minister, and maybe minister too, 
Before the guy is healed, Peter steps forward and, verse 7, he takes him by the right hand, sorry, you're my stooge, and takes him to his feet. And at that point, thank you, darling, uh, for those listening, that was my poor wife. I sort of embroiled into being a living teaching aide. Peter steps out, and remember, this is the Peter who had denied Jesus three times and has been restored. So Jesus is using Peter, who was restored, to be an agent of restoration of someone else. This is Peter who gets out of the boat and who sinks, starts to sink. But here it's Peter taking him by the right hand, helps him up, And instantly, the man's feet and ankles become strong. Do you see what happens? Peter has to step out in a little bit of faith by inviting the man to stand, taking hold of him. And when he's done that, there's an instantaneous healing. And that speaks to me that we have to go. We have to fly by the seat of our pants, by the seat of faith, uh, by the whisper of God's spirit. There's no easy way to be obedient to the Lord's command uh, to step out and to uh, see the miraculous. And what do we get in verse 8? The man jumps to his feet and begins to walk. He doesn't shuffle. Now, this is utterly remarkable. This is a man of over 40 years of age, because we, we find that out a little bit later in the book of Acts, probably about 42. He has never, ever been able to walk. And you parents, well, any parents here, you know what it's like getting kids to walk. You know, there's a, sort of cra- there's, a, there's a sort of scrambling stage, and then there's the tottering stage, and then there's a sort of look at me before they fall down stage. And eventually, there comes the day when they walk, and they take their first step, and their second step, and their third step. And it's a process. What makes this doubly miraculous is this bloke has never, ever been able to walk. And at the age of 40-something, he gets up, and he walks. We're not told he's like in baby reigns, he gets up and he gets on with it. And he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And that's a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 35 and verse 6 talks about the lame leaping like a deer. The lame leaping like a deer. This is what this guy does. And of course... The Levitical injunctions prevented a disabled person going into the temple. So at the age of 40-something, this is the first time this bloke has been able to go into the temple and to experience worship in all its depth. Up to that point, he has been an outsider. And he praises God, and he walks and he jumps. You know, there's nothing tentative about this healing. You know, he's, 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 he's absolutely healed. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognised him as the same man who used to sit begging. And I imagine, you know, you could probably hear the cogs whirring in the head. What on earth is going on? What on earth had gone on, of course, was that Peter had been faithful. And I'm going to tell you another story to illustrate what I'm on about here. Phil Moore, preacher up in London, tells this story. He goes into his shed one day and he finds a cat has been shut in. 
The cat has been desperate to get out. Sorry, Phil, I've kept my back to you. Um, uh, he's, he, he's, the cat has made an absolute mess. And so Phil's first approach is to look at the cat and say, Come on, puss, there you go. There you go. And the cat just looks at him and meows and smiles or whatever cats do. And then Phil looks around the shed and he thinks, Oh, for goodness sake, this shed is an utter mess. And instead of, Come on, puss, there you go. Get out of here! And the cat scarpers. And I just wonder sometimes, you know, we're a bit tentative. There are times when, in Jesus' name, we need to say to somebody, be whole. Not tentative, not, oh Lord, would you, you know, I'm just wondering if you could sort this out, please. We actually go for it. And uh, we, we, we go full pelt. What's the reaction? These people recognised the man as the same man who used to sit begging at the gate called Beautiful and the people were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Well, of course they were. They hadn't seen anything like this before. Important here, these folk don't come to faith at that point. But if we go forward into Acts 4... Uh, we find there that people do come to faith as a result of this incident. Now, we haven't got time to go into that, and that's not in our text this morning. But you only have to read on a short number of verses to find that this miracle has opened a doorway into their souls and has opened uh, a vulnerability, if you like, to what God is up to. And I want to encourage you this morning that the reason these gifts were given was for the building up of the church, for the honouring of Christ's name. Our gospel, our good news, is a gospel of power and of works. If you look in the most rudimentary Bible concordances, you'll find that excluding the gospels, there are getting on for at least 40 times that the word power is used to describe the Christian life and the Christian ministry. And I think this passage encourages us today to say, what's my experience? Now I don't say that to condemn you. Some of you may be knowing power in your ministry on a daily basis and that's fabulous. But I look at my life and that is not always the case. And it's very easy to make our current experience of a lack of the miraculous the yardstick by which we judge the normal Christian life. And so actually we assume a sub-biblical view. We get used to the absence of miracle. We rationalise it and we say, well, that's how it must be now. No, that's not how it must be now. The Holy Spirit has been outpoured on the church There is no biblical mandate. If there is, please, please come and correct me. There is uh, no biblical mandate that I can find for the withdrawal of any of these gifts. And the reason that gifts like... Please, come on then. Uh, you know, food being given, the food banks, all the 
things you're saying are powerfully uh, bringing scriptures to life, but we're not very bad a church. You know, uh, where our land is run by people that love money and hate God. It's very easy to be brave in church. And oh, yeah. About these things. And it's uh, for me vile and terrifying that that is the only place where we have no, well, thank, thank you. I mean, we have friends uh, who are, by way of example, in Exeter. They've, they've abandoned their service once a month on a Sunday afternoon. And they go out in threes. And they pray about it before they go out. And I'll tell you a story recently. It's literally three or four weeks old. They got a very distinct impression they ought to go to a specific bookshop. They hung around outside that bookshop, just chatting they see a bloke who is um, not a friend, but known to one of them because they, share, they go to the same gym. He says, oh, what are you doing here? And they say, well, you probably know I'm a Christian and uh, we just felt God was asking us to, uh, to come out to this place today because we just want to pray blessing on people. And uh, they get chatting some more. And uh, one of the ladies, our friend, in fact, said... Um, she says, please, please excuse me, but I've just got a sense that God is saying um, he wants us to bless um, your firstborn. I'm not quite sure what that means. And this bloke goes, oh, my goodness. He says, my wife is seven months pregnant. And so there and then on the high street in Exeter, these three folks gather around them. So your challenge is absolutely right, uh, that we need to see uh, you know, an outpouring of God's grace on the streets. It's very easy, as you say, to preach in here. But our ministry is in the marketplace, as George Carey said. Um, we can come here to get fueled up on a Sunday. We can come here to be encouraged. But our ministry is as resistance fighters, it's as renegades out there, uh, street battles into whatever we're called, as couples, maybe as, as uh, triplets, whatever. Uh, so it's a, it's a great challenge. Um, and we need to demonstrate uh, the power of the gospel so that men and women may come to a point of salvation and complete healing. And it's got to, as our friend there, sorry, I don't know your Christian name. Tom. Tom. As Tom has challenged this, our ministry is out there. I'm going to be really radical now but to make the point, but I don't, I don't mean it 100%. In a sense, you know, this place is irrelevant. What, what, is, what is important is the... 40 or 50 hearts and, and the hearts of the kids. It's you as a body of people called out that's the important thing. And how you get dispatched through the week into battle and then come here and uh, to pray over things uh, the next weekend. Well, I think we're, we're pretty much done now. Um, we've been at it nearly half an hour. Um, and I just want to conclude uh, by reading a psalm. Psalm 103, just the first five verses. Um, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, forget not all his benefits. The Lord who forgives all your sin and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. And so I hope as we come to the end of our time together, we've been encouraged to step out in fresh ways, to both offer and to receive healing, and also that you might be able to reflect in a slightly different way on what the what was.